My own feeling is just with what we know about scientific wellness and healthy aging and so forth now, I think for ordinary people, we could guarantee that their health span will equal their lifespan and that their lifespan and health span will extend into the 90s or even into the hundreds. Hi, and welcome to GeekWire from GeekWire.com in Seattle. I'm Todd Bishop. I'm joined here in the GeekWire studios by my colleague, Charlotte Schubert, who covers healthcare and life sciences. Charlotte, it's great to see you. Good to be here, Todd. Charlotte, you've been reading a very interesting book called The Age of Scientific Wellness. It's a new book by someone I've actually gotten to follow over the years and talk to a number of times, Dr. Leroy Hood. And this is someone, for folks who may not know him, who actually played a key role in some of the key life sciences discoveries of the 1980s. He was the leader of a team at Caltech that developed the automated DNA sequencer and other innovations that gave scientists new insights into the hidden code of life. Charlotte, on this episode, you're going to be talking with Dr. Hood about his new book. What else should we know about him? Well, not only was he a pioneer of DNA and protein sequencing, he's also a Seattle scientific luminary. He moved here after Caltech, and he um, was the founder of the Institute for Systems Biology, which was established in the year 2000. I think people should also know that he was recruited to the University of Washington prior to that by none other than Bill Gates. He's also played a role in founding several biotech companies, including Amgen, Nanostring, and Aravale. He's also known as a proponent of what he calls P4 medicine. He says medicine should be predictive, preventive, personalized, and participatory. Dr. Hood outlines this approach, P4, in his new book, which, as we said, is called The Age of Scientific Wellness with his co-author, Nathan Price. Charlotte, I'm looking forward to hearing your conversation with him. Let's just jump in and listen to it now. Welcome to the show, Dr. Hood. Pleasure to be here. We're here to talk about your new book, The Age of Scientific Wellness, You've long been known as a proponent of what you call P4 medicine. You say medicine should be predictive, preventive, personalized, and participatory. And you lay out your approach in more detail in this book. But before we get into it, I just want to ask you sort of a general question. Like, there's been a lot uh, written about you over the years, including a biography by journalist Luke Timmerman. Why was it important for you to tell your own story with this book? Well, the book actually starts with a history of both Nathan Price, my co-author, and myself that gives a context for how we think about wellness and prevention and gives a context for the technologies that had to be developed for the computational tools that had to be developed. And most important, probably the biggest challenge of the set of P4 values is the fourth P4, which is participatory. Namely, how do you get patients, how do you get physicians, healthcare leaders, healthcare technology companies, regulators, governments, politicians, to participate in what will be the biggest revolution ever in healthcare, the, the transformation from a healthcare focus almost entirely on disease to one that's going to be focused on wellness and prevention. In your book, you say that healthcare needs to be more wellness-centric. What do you mean by scientific wellness, and how does it contrast with the healthcare system as we know it today? 
Well, scientific wellness is predicated on the idea that each of us has a trajectory of health that we can follow across each of our lives. And we now have the ability with this health trajectory using a data-rich approach and using new methods of AI to actually assess the health trajectory and to optimize the health trajectory for each individual. And to really understand that, you have to realize that your health trajectory, or the word health really has three different meanings. On the one hand, it relates to wellness, which we're all born in. On the other hand, all of us have transitioned from wellness to a disease, and and a second state of health is this transition. And it turns out that that transition is very important, A, because we know now how to detect it very early before you ever get the disease clinically, and B, we'll learn in the future how to reverse it before you ever get sick. So the idea is we can really begin to bring down the incidence of chronic diseases like diabetes and cardiovascular disease and Alzheimer's and the like. And of course, the third area of health is disease. It's initiation, it's progression, it's going to a termination, whether it returns back to health or whether it ends up permanently enabling the individual or even uh, killing them. But the really important point is with this data-driven, AI-driven approach to healthcare, we now can absolutely optimize wellness. And we do that by analyzing what we call statistical associations between different data types that lead us to, quote, actionable possibilities, which are actions which, if taken by the individual, can either improve wellness or let one avoid disease. And an example of that for myself was the fact that my blood analysis shed I was very, very low on vitamin D. Yet if I took repeatedly a thousand international units, which typically will take you back to normal, my levels of vitamin D didn't change at all. And it turned out that I had two genetic variants that blocked the uptake of vitamin D. And to get around that, I had to take 15,000 international units. And that brought me to normal. And then I maintained myself with 5,000 international units. But that is an example of an actionable possibility that brought me back to a normal level. And low levels of vitamin D are bad It leads to osteoporosis. It can lead to cardiovascular disease. It even is associated with Alzheimer's in some senses. So in a program, we started a company. We started in 2015 called Aerofail. We acquired 5,000 patients, each with their data clouds. And we were able to generate of the order of 200 different actionable possibilities looking at these statistical correlations and going to the literature and saying, this is how we have to solve 
this particular problem. You say that all of us at some point make that transition from health to disease. You're saying that your approach, we can see that coming. I'm saying with our approach, we can see it coming up to years before it would manifest as a clinical disease. And that gives us plenty of time to reverse it at an early stage when it's simpler to reverse. Back to Aravel, which you mentioned, you championed a wellness concept at that company. Unfortunately, it did go out of business in 2019. But I'm kind of curious what you learned from it and what it's going to take for this approach to catch on in the future. Well, I think the positive things we learned were that data clouds on 5,000 different people have, over the past nine years or so, led to more than 30 papers. And each of those papers illuminates a different aspect of wellness or prevention and shows us how we have to go forward and gives us confidence that we can go forward. I will say that about a year and a half ago, I started a nonprofit company called Phenome Health. And one of Phenome Health's major objectives is to take the airfail population of 5,000 and to increase it by 200-fold, making it a million people. And we're proposing to do, in a sense, a second genome project a 10-year study on a million patients with this data-rich, AI-rich approach to it. And what we feel that that study will be able to do is unequivocally demonstrate, one, we can increase enormously the quality of healthcare for each individual that participates, and two, we can end up showing how we'll be saving trillions of dollars in healthcare costs in the future. And one very simple example is today we spend $4 trillion a year, more than twice any of the other countries out there, and yet we're at the bottom of the 20 most developed countries with regard to quality of healthcare. And the question is, why is that so? And that's absolutely a fascinating complicated question that people that argue about all the time. But I think one of the reasons is the explosion of the aging population, the explosion of chronic diseases, the challenge of escalating healthcare costs and so forth. If we can begin to handle the healthcare costs, that is going to be a very compelling argument for the payers to say perhaps they can make even more money with wellness and prevention than they could with disease once we substantiate that possibility. I'm going to ask you a practical question that you know a lot of our listeners are probably curious about, which is uh, how can the everyday person put into practice the approach you're advocating? Well, I think in reading the book, we give the typical person a whole series of recommendations about doing it. But You know, first, it starts just with the classic things that we do and think about for wellness. So a proper diet, less red meat, more vegetables, fiber, those kind of things. I think the idea of exercise is incredibly important. And I've always been an exercise fanatic myself. And I think that's one of the most important elements of wellness, that is to do it 
and to have a broad series of exercises, both aerobic and anaerobic, and to do it regularly. I think the idea of having the proper amount of sleep, I think the idea of really dealing with stress, I think one of the big dangers for aging in contemporary society is the amount of stress people experience and their ability to deal with it uh, very effectively. So that's on the one side. Now on the other side, we offer a whole new menu of things with this data-driven health that include actionable possibilities that come from your genome, actionable possibilities that come from measurements of your phenome, that is blood analytes and the gut microbiome and digital health and things like that. And the integration of these together, as I showed with the vitamin D example, leads to yet other actionable possibilities. And we speculate, for example, with a million-person project over 10 years, we'll see more than 200,000 wellness to disease transitions. So we'll be able to do the correlation even for rare diseases to find uh, early diagnostic markers and the appropriate therapy to prevent them. We also feel that with this study, we'll generate 10,000 or more new actionable possibilities. And that takes us with enormous clarity to the absolute mandate that AI will have to deliver these 10,000 possibilities, which will extend across every dimension of medicine you can imagine. No human physician could possibly know or take in that kind of data. And the AI will have to deliver to the physician these instructions about actionable possibilities saying clearly what they are and how to carry them out in the patients. And at the same time, we'll have to provide the clinical evidence that validates the actionable possibility. And this is all possible, and we're beginning to set up the means for doing these kinds of things as we speak. You're listening to my colleague Charlotte Schubert's conversation with Dr. Lee Hood about his new book with his co-author Nathan Price, The Age of Scientific Wellness. We'll be right back with more. I wanted a career in IT, but I didn't know where to start. WGU makes it simple. Their accredited online degree programs cover all kinds of IT specialties, and they have valuable industry certifications built in at no extra cost. The payoff? Having those certs back up my degree makes me look even better to future employers. A nonprofit university that includes top industry certs in their programs? I choose WGU. Learn more at wgu.edu backslash IT certs included. Welcome back. You're listening to GeekWire. Let's rejoin my colleague Charlotte Schubert's conversation with Dr. Lee Hood about his new book, The Age of Scientific Wellness. You talk a lot in your book about the potential for AI to really almost revolutionize or at least support medicine. But it was also written before the advent of GPT-3 and GPT-4, the generative large language models that mimic human speech in response to prompts. How do you see such models changing healthcare? Well, let me say that we had an article published in the Wall Street Journal from our AI section in the book, 
and we modified it to include chat GPT. So we said very clearly how we see using that in the future. And and the essence of that is the really key thing about chat GPT is if you want to use it for medicine, you have to educate the hyperscale AI device with the appropriate medical features. And so we plan to take a device and use only medical features to do the education. And these would include all of PubMed, the medical literature. They would include two very large knowledge graphs and a smaller knowledge graph that's much more annotated. We're working on digital twins, which accumulate data about wellness or about diabetes, too, that we're building. And all of these will go into our hyperscale AI device. So it will be exactly tuned to be able to take the complex data from each patient and talk about the actionable possibilities that this patient will require to bring them back toward normal. And that's the vision of how we see using chat GPT. And it's a vision of how many people see using it. But the proper instruction of this hyperscale AI device, uh, chat GPT, is absolutely critical. Are you doing that through the Institute for Systems Biology or with the Phenome Project? Or We're actually doing this through Phenome Health the company that uh, nonprofit company that I've set up to push the million person project forward. Do you think even with proper training, do you think the GPT models are going to be accurate enough? I think in the beginning, we're going to have to check them all very carefully with humans. But I think increasingly, they'll become accurate enough that we can back off on checking every single thing. And I think there'll be areas where we can really edit them to make sure we know they're absolutely accurate in in those areas. For example, one of the first data-driven chronic diseases that we're going to be starting to analyze and use in very powerful new ways is diabetes. And we'll probably learn in the next three or four years more about diabetes than we've learned in the last 50 years. And I think that kind of education is going to be enormously informative then for dealing with actionable possibilities related to diabetes. And that's the kind of thing we'd like to do for each of the major chronic diseases in the future. So some of these actionable possibilities are not yet realized, but I imagine that the more you learn about health and the more you understand people at the granular data level, the more you understand how you can interfere. That is exactly correct. And one of the biggest deficiencies in the Aerofield program for scientific wellness is it only concentrated on the body. And in this next program, we'll be concentrating on the brain and we'll be concentrating on the gut microbiome. And those are three pillars that are utterly critical, whose integration together is what makes a seamless operation of a human being. And we think you need to be able to exercise your brain just like you exercise your body and your heart. And uh, there'll be a lot of very explicit instructions 
actionable possibilities for doing this. You did spend a lot of time in your book talking about brain health, and I was wondering if you can uh, elaborate a little bit on some of the interventions you see that you know could promote optimal brain health as people age, especially in response to individual markers and that people have in these kind of measurements. Sure. One of the most exciting type of measurement and intervention possibilities is our ability now to carry out a digital analysis of cognitive features. And in this, we're collaborating with Michael Merzenich at UCSF, who started a company called Posit that has actually developed this digital brain measuring tools. And essentially, they have some 40 measurements they can use to assess 25 different cognitive features. And cognitive features are things like reaction time, depth of field, and memory, just to give you examples of this. And what Merzenich has done, and he actually got the Kevley Prize for this, is for the first time he demonstrated that the brain is plastic and it's plastic all the way out into the 80s or 90s. And actually what he shows is our cognitive abilities rise to a maximum for normal people in the mid-30s, and they gradually fade away thereafter. And he took a 1,000 individuals and showed the majority of them could be assessed with these devices and then the lost cognitive features could be returned approximately to the levels they had supposedly at the 35. So it means in your late 80s, as long as you haven't lost neurons, your brain has a plasticity to return it back to its youthful kind of vigor. And that's what we would like to install in the scientific wellness that we see in this program, that you would never slope off on cognitive features, but you'd maintain your mid-30s level of cognitive features. And frankly, your brain can actually increase in its cognitive features as you learn and as you learn how to integrate and use the executive part of the, the brain, uh, the forebrain and so forth. So we see using these features, and there are other approaches that can be used too that are physiologic and biochemical in nature, but we'll have a variety of these things that will optimize your health. So how do you get the brain back to that 30s state? Just as a regular person, what should you be doing to keep that brain kind of plastic and healthy? Posit has a group of games that's called Brain HQ, and you can look, pause it up on the web and see the Brain HQ. And these HQ exercises all are pointed at different cognitive features to bring them out. And to give you a beautiful example, Tom Brady, the quarterback for the Patriots and whoever else, Tampa Bay afterwards, has used those as he moved into his late 30s and 40s to improve his reaction time, his depth of field, and so forth. And he swears it's what's given him the ability to perform at a Super Bowl level in his 40s. And of course, no one has ever done that before. 
but it's an example of the kind of features that you can optimize for yourselves. What was the name of that the puzzle system? The company is called Posit, P-O-S-I-T. Their programs are called Brain HQ. Oh, so that's just an example, keeping your brain alive with that kind of puzzle systems. Exercise and puzzle. And yeah, I mean, an example that uh, is just to be explicit, they show you a picture with a whole group of birds, 25 or 30, and one is different. And all of a sudden, the birds explode out from the center to the edge. And you have a certain amount of time to see one bird that's different from all the rest. And what this will do is give you shorter and shorter periods of time as you train yourself to get that depth of field more effectively. So it really is a a very powerful program for extending cognitive abilities. All right, I want to back up a little bit because you've already started talking about your new endeavor. Can you just tell me a little bit about Phenome, what it is and how it came together? Phenome Health is a nonprofit company that's dedicated to using this data-driven, AI-driven approach to health. And it has a short-term series of initiatives where we're going to use that approach to attack the four major chronic diseases that are the real killers in the U.S. today. So that's diabetes, that's cancer, it's cardiovascular disease, and it's Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, and other neurodepressive diseases. And the idea is to use this very data-rich approach in ways that we can study these diseases and learn about their natural history, not in the normal 15 or 20 years many of these things take to to evolve, but we can slice that 20 years into three or four different segments and get it done in four or five years. And the idea is then, once we've learned all of this new information, we can convert that into actionable possibilities, if you will, and what this means in pharmaceutical industry is biomarkers for key transitions and targets for drugs and so forth. And then we can partner with drug companies to use these new insights to go after therapeutic approaches and so forth. But the real key thing, again, is to get these early diagnostics years before clinical manifestation and reverse the disease very, very early when it's simple. So we'll have to learn how to study the early disease and how it's simple. And we've already begun to do that. We have very powerful approaches for doing that. I'm kind of curious. uh, You mentioned that this endeavor is going to focus a lot on the brain, but you also mentioned the microbiome. Um, And, you know, microbiome is something that a lot of people have been paying more attention to uh, recently, like the relationship between gut and brain health, and how a readout of your microbiome can also reflect your overall health. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the things you've been learning about the importance of that, the microbial system of your body? Yes. So the gut microbiome are the bacteria that live in your gut, and they probably have a hundred times as much different types of DNA as are present in your own genome and everything. And they very clearly control health and are associated with certain diseases. 
So with the Aravail data, where we did analyze the gut microbiome, we've shown, number one, that diversity in the gut microbiome to a first approximation is a sign of a very healthy gut microbiome. So we'd like to be able to assess that diversity. And we were able to show that just 11 blood analytes can actually be used to assess very accurately the diversity of the gut microbiome. A second thing that we did that really was striking is we were able to look at how the gut microbiome process statins. And it turns out that different bacteria in the gut microbiome could either enhance the good effect of statins, which is to reduce the level of LDL cholesterol, or it could enhance the worst secondary side effect of statins, which is to move you into diabetes. So we're coming to the conclusion that most drugs are going to be very much influenced by your gut microbiome. And we want to be able to understand the profiles and be able to change them so we can optimize drug usage rather than enhance its bad cross effects and off-target effects and things like that. I think the most interesting study we've done on the gut microbiome was done a year ago where we studied men that ranged 60 to 85 or so in age group, 9,000 of them. We looked at the microbiomes. And what we showed is if you aged in a healthy way, your gut microbiome lost all of the core microbiome you had in your 20s and 30s, and every healthy person differentiated a unique microbiome, presumably in response to what their needs were in their 70s and 80s and so forth. In converse, the unhealthy people never lost their core microbiomes and never analyzed things any later. And what we were able to demonstrate is the difference between in the 80s, over a four-year period, healthy and unhealthy people was the unhealthy people had four times the death rate of the healthy people. So the interesting idea is we may be able to engineer your microbiomes in the future to really optimize the healthy aging process as opposed to the unhealthy. There's a lot of companies out there that say that they can analyze your microbiome. Do you think people should go out there and use those services and try and figure out what's going on out there? I think the real question is, what do you want when you analyze your gut microbiome? And the things that we can tell you now are somewhat general, but I would say in two or three years, there are going to be very specific concrete things. Actionable possibilities will be due say, to optimize your microbiome if you're taking statins to maximize the good effects, to optimize your microbiome so you age more effectively, those kind of things. So right now, the microbiome, the, the one thing you're interested in, is it diverse? And if you're diverse to a first approximation, that means you're pretty healthy. And clearly, it reflects diet in all sorts of interesting ways. 
but learning to engineer it, learning what actionable possibilities are, that's still a few years in the future. There's been an increase, you note this in your book, there's been an increase in the last few decades towards more complementary and alternative medicine. Some of this reflects people's needs to be seen as individuals and listened to by the provider. But there's also a lot of what you call quackery. There are a number of treatments and companies that take on a scientific mantle, but would probably fall into that category. What should the consumer be careful of? Well, I think the consumer always has to be very careful of who his medical providers are. I will say in the naturopath area, there are a subset of people that are called functional medicine doctors that are superb, that know the classic pathology and features of being a general practitioner, but on the other hand, are very aware of the gut microbiome and all of these other things. They're real advocates of this kind of scientific wellness. But I think you do have to be careful because of the quacks. I think the other thing is there are really a lot of companies out there that promote wellness, and most of them, it's really a pretty empty wellness that is exercise, diet, you know, uh, stress, sleep, that kind of thing, with general blanket kinds of things. And what the data-driven approach does is tell you how you can take each of those and specifically optimize your exercise, your diet, and things like that. We're learning more and more about that as we learn about the gut microbiome and diet and its response to the other aspects of health. Your co-author, Nathan Price, is CEO of a company, a wellness company called Longevity, which is now part of Thorn Health. How does this company fit into you and your co-author's idea of scientific wellness? Longevity moved into a supplement company called Thorn. Now it's called Thorn Healthcare. And the idea is to use supplements to optimize people's wellness and to set up some of these simple programs that use the principles we've talked about in our book. So the kind of things that Thorne is doing is, for example, they're exploring the enormous world of great dimensionality of supplements and asking, can inexpensive supplements take the place of really expensive drugs in the treatment of some diseases. And they're arguing that they can do that. There are some interesting supplements, for example, that have anti-aging kind of effects. That's another area that I think is going to be very important for the future. So that's one area they're thinking about. Another area, something they've done that's very interesting is in the data-driven approach we've taken, it mandatorily requires a blood draw. And that is perhaps the most complicated single aspect of what you ask a patient to do. Come to a central location every three months or every six months and get a blood draw and everything. Thorne has developed a device that has the ability just to sit on your arm and do a punch with two very thin lances and get sufficient blood for the analysis of many of the things that we've talked about here. 
the devices are really inexpensive, much less expensive than going to a phlebotomist and getting the blood drawn and everything. We'll probably be collaborating on some of our clinical trials with Thorn to use that uh, kind of device. They've done other things to facilitate scientific wellness, and I think they're going to be very useful in the future. We're going to take one more quick break. We'll be right back with more of our conversation with Dr. Lee Hood about his new book, The Age of Scientific Wellness. This GeekWire podcast is sponsored in part by Yale University Press. Are you concerned about the rise of AI and how it will impact our society? Every day, artificial intelligence presents us with urgent ethical challenges. How do we harness this extraordinary technology to empower rather than oppress? Nigel Shadbolt and Roger Hampson have written a how-to for building ethical machine intelligence. Their new book, As If Human, Ethics and Artificial Intelligence, is now available wherever books are sold. Welcome back. Here is the rest of reporter Charlotte Schubert's conversation with Dr. Lee Hood about his new book, The Age of Scientific Wellness. In your book, you outline 12 principles. You say that healthcare should be wellness-centric, informed by your genome, informed by your lifestyle choices and life history, become more data-rich, be systems-driven and powered by artificial intelligence, aim to eliminate chronic disease, focus on healthy aging, it should be regenerative, focused on optimizing brain function, mostly practiced in the home, and more transparent about costs. Which one of these has the most potential to transform healthcare? Well, you know, they're all so intimately interrelated, it's really hard to say. But at the highest level, I would say what we're really aiming for is a program that provides wellness for all. And by that, I mean every individual should have access to this kind of wellness. From a startup perspective, which one of these principles do you think uh, has the most potential for industry to adopt? I'll tell you, Phenome Health's view of this is that there are five major challenges in contemporary healthcare, okay? And we feel that this data-driven, AI-driven approach to health is going to solve all of these problems in really effective ways. So the first is the quality of healthcare in the U.S. overall as compared with other countries is really abysmally small. And that isn't to say there isn't a lot of excellent medical care, but there's a lot of terrible medical care too. So we would like to see uniform quality across the uh, U.S. population. I think a second thing that we have to acknowledge is our population is aging very rapidly. And I think we have, with this data-driven approach, one, created an algorithm that lets you determine your biological age, the age your body says you are, and of course, your chronologic age, the lower your biological age is from chronologic age, the healthier you are. And the nice thing about the algorithm and the metric that we use is it allows you to actually determine the biological age of major organs like the kidney, like the liver, like the immune system, metabolism. 
And we can make recommendations about how to slow the aging process and all of those kind of things. And to give you an example of why we think this metric is important is of the 5,000 people that stayed in the Aerofail program, women lost 1.5 years of biological age per year in the program, and men lost 0.8 years per year in the program. So this is a significant improvement in the aging process. And the really interesting question is if we went on, how much further we could really drive that down. Again, the reason that's important too is because aging is the major determinant factor for all chronic diseases. And the more you slow it down, the less you're going to go on to chronic diseases. The third thing is chronic diseases. And with these data trials I've talked about, and with the ability to detect their transition early and reverse it, hopefully we can deal with that. And I think a fourth area that's really important is equity, inclusion, and so forth. That is, we have to have a racial balance in the data we use to analyze people because different races have very different responses for example, the genes that predispose to Alzheimer's and things like that. And you need to know that so you can treat each people from each of these uh, races properly. And finally, the final thing that's really out of hand is the ever-escalating costs of healthcare. And as I indicated earlier, I think we can really think about procedures that are going to save literally trillions of dollars in healthcare a year. And then I would just throw out that throw that up against the cost of the uh, Human Phenome Initiative, the Million Person Project, that's two or three B-52 bombers. So what would you rather have, a war someplace, or would you rather transform health from disease to wellness and prevention? I think embedded in a lot of those is what you mentioned at the beginning, which is uh, artificial intelligence. We were just kind of curious about the level of impact you think AI is going to have. Do you think it could have as much impact on human health as automated DNA sequencing did? Absolutely. I think it will be the core foundation for the diagnosis and delivery of actionable possibilities for the information that comes from data-driven health in the future. It will be able to take each individual and map out exactly how we should optimize their health and keep track of it. So in our last few minutes of the show, I want to ask a little bit about you. My first question is, you've already talked a little bit about this. I don't know how much, you know, some of it's a little personal, but I think you're over 80. It's hard to tell. Eighty-four, but my biological age is fifteen years younger. Okay. Well, that's what I want to ask you about. Um, you're obviously fit mentally, physically. Tell us a little bit about the lessons you've applied to your own life. I've always been an athlete, so I played football in high school and college. I uh, took up rock climbing and mountaineering, and really did a lot of that in my. Uh, middle life up into the 60s, late 60s, and so forth. But from the late 20s, I've always done a lot of exercises. 
and uh, exercises, anaerobic stretching, the whole business. And I think all of those really have added to this dimension of being 15 years younger than my chronologic age. I do want to ask one more personal question. It kind of goes back into your childhood and some of the things you mentioned in the book. And I think you talked a little bit about how your um, your mindset towards medicine evolved. In the book, you tell us that your father worked for Mountain States Bell and taught week-long summer courses to his employees on electrical engineering. And you sat in on them. And uh, you said it kind of affected your thinking. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that and how it affected your philosophy towards medicine in the world. Well, yeah. I mean, taking courses on circuit design and systems engineering, you know, at a at a simple level for a high school student, really led me to a way of thinking that I think profoundly affected how I thought about biology. And that's why when I went to Caltech and started thinking about what were the roadblocks to dealing with human complexity, the first roadblock was developing technologies that could actually measure a lot of data from humans because I was convinced big data was the only solution to deciphering human complexity. And that led me to developing over the years six instruments that really served as a framework for modern molecular biology, including the uh, automated protein sequencer and the automated DNA sequencer, which made possible the Human Genome Project and got me very involved in that project. If everything you foresee in AI and scientific wellness comes to fruition in the next 10 to 20 years, how will human health change and how long do you think people might be able to live healthy and fulfilling lives? That's really a great question. My own feeling is just with what we know about scientific wellness and healthy aging and so forth now, I think for ordinary people, we could guarantee that their health span will equal their lifespan and that their lifespan and health span will extend into the 90s or even into the hundreds. Okay. And I think if you look at what happens today, the lifespan can extend into the 80s or 90s, but for many, many people, they have so many things wrong with them that life is not as pleasurable as it was when you're young. I want to move, see people move into the 90s, excited, creative, functional, not retiring, but energetically doing whatever they wish and having the energy to interact with people, which is really a key thing to successful aging. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Hood. My pleasure. Thanks to my colleague, Charlotte Schubert, for that illuminating interview with Dr. Lee Hood about his new book, The Age of Scientific Wellness, written with his co-author, Nathan Price. And thanks for listening, everybody. I'm GeekWire co-founder, Todd Bishop. Kurt Milton edited and produced this show. Our theme music is by Daniel L.K. Caldwell, and we will be back soon with a new episode of the GeekWire podcast. <laughs>